This is as far as you go, buddy. Ahead of you lies the great kingdom of Canada. It is accessible only to the most noble and valiant of people. It's showtime! Welcome back to Unfucking the Republic with love to Bookstore Kim, the Laras, both H and E, Wendy T and Jeremy Down Under, Undercover Fucker Joshua T, Kara C, Leftist Dad Steve C, Here We Go Blue, M Busto picking up on the cues, and in honor of our neighbors to the north, I'd like to say what up to Jacob and Morgan, Montreal JP, Alex VB, the great and loyal Tracution, and Andre C. Show notes today will be courtesy of Manny and 99, as I laid this down right before my vacation, and we like to do our show notes as close to the episode drop as possible, so they'll check in at the end of the show and hopefully not abuse me in any way. Who? Us? (laughs) Come on. We've been welcoming listeners from all over the English-speaking world, with my Aussie mates from Down Under showing a lot of love, unfuckers all over the UK, and some transplants in Western Europe who've checked in as well. But nowhere outside of the U.S. has the support for unfucking the Republic been more vocal than in Canada. And it makes sense, especially given the last four years. Canada, like every other country on Earth, was riveted by the Trump years. You know, in the rubbernecking, holy fuck a train just hit a car that hit an elephant that fell on a toddler kind of way. This guy being the president, it's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. It's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. I think eventually everything's going to be okay, but I have no idea what's going to happen next. Just how fixated were Canucks on the slow-rolling shit show below? Well, according to Canadian TV critic Bill Briou, Canadians are consuming more and more American news content, in large part due to the Trump bump. Quote, in Canada throughout the presidential campaign and into 2021, U.S. conventional and specialty viewership had soared 40% among 25 to 54-year-old viewers year to year and 39% overall. Much of that growth can be attributed to CNN. Of course, they were just looking in with horror. Here in the States, it wasn't a show. It was a lived experience, and it impacted us differently. The years passed, and mankind became stupider at a frightening rate. So today, we're deliberately turning our attention north to see what the fuck has been happening in Canada. For our Canadian friends, here's a sample of the Canadian news and information that we're typically exposed to here in the States. Now, you might or should be wondering why and how we're going to go about this episode. After all, it's not really possible to tell a nuanced or important story about an entire nation in a single episode. And that's certainly not my intent. So we'll set things up with why we felt this was the right time to bring our nations together on this pod, provide a little background and historical context for the Canadian political system, and highlight some of the larger, more pertinent issues that Canada currently faces. As one might imagine, there's so much missing from this piece. Fascinating shit like Canada's official founding in 1867 to its other official founding in 1982. Yes, 1982. We're not going to cover that, so Google it if you need context. We also don't cover other important details like provincial politics, which differ just as much as they do in the United States, or huge events like Quebec's independence referendums in 1980 and again in 1995. The purpose of this, again, is to draw parallels between certain aspects of Canadian and American economic and political issues and establish a baseline of understanding so we can more easily incorporate concepts from both nations into future episodes. Plus, it's important to be politically literate, so just fucking pay attention. We have a special collaborative contribution from our buddy Tom McGovern in place of our inter-episode sketch, sort of an homage or tribute to our neighbors and a special guest from Canada's top independent political podcast network who will help keep us on track. A couple of housekeeping notes as we are undoubtedly welcoming new listeners to the show. UNFTR utilizes music beds and clips that might be distracting or difficult for listeners with auditory processing issues. Translated into Canadian, that's auditory processing issues. Accessibility is important to us, though, so we release a version of each episode without music beds that's linked in the episode description. And rather than just transcripts, we offer the essays from the show for free at unftr.substack.com. So please join us over there if you're so inclined. As for us, UNFTR examines U.S. politics primarily through economic and socioeconomic lenses, though we at times drift into social and cultural arenas as well. The show's nemesis, who actually makes an appearance today on Fuckers, is famed Chicago school economist Milton Friedman, though there are others as well, like Rupert Murdoch, the Koch family, and Ronald Reagan. 
One of our missions is to promote awareness of native issues and promote indigenous economic development. This will be much more intuitive, of course, to our Canadian audience, as we'll cover shortly. But for the uninitiated perspective unfuckers, there are two episodes that best explain who we are and set up the show for today. And those are Culture Cancel and Fuck Milton Friedman. The former episode is about native issues in America, though we touch on Canada as well. And the latter is, well, it's a takedown of our nemesis. So, America, it's my pleasure to formally introduce you to your neighbor up north with a proper unfucking. Let's do this. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs Another basic white guy who started a podcast But it's fun because he curses Canada has been very difficult to deal with. They have been taking advantage of the United States for a long time. I am not happy with their requests, but I will tell you, in the end, we win. We will win, and we'll win big. Oh, Canada, ye strange and beautiful land up yonder. How little we know of thee. You look just like us almost sound like us, and yet you remain a mystery, you little minx. Well, we're gonna open the attic door and rummage around for a bit and see just what we can find. Let's kick things off in the true spirit of partnership. American Unfuckers, it's my great pleasure to introduce Jesse Brown, publisher of independent Canadian news media outlet Canada Land and host of the eponymous podcast the Toronto Star called quote smug loudmouthed and easy to dislike Jesse I think we're gonna get along just fine thanks for helping us out today my pleasure Max uh, great to meet all of the American unfuckers Jesse I want to ease our listeners in a bit can you give us a top level overview of the Canadian system first off God save the Queen Amen. So Canada was originally a hat company, but is now a quasi-independent royal principality governed by a coalition of mining and telecom concerns. Our capital is Toronto, population 1,200. Alaska was lost to the Americans in the Northern Lights Battle of 1800, but we have been occupying much of it since the late 60s, and you just haven't noticed yet. In recognition of the French who drive on the right side of the road and also the British who drive on the left, uh, we here in Canada simply drive in the middle. Also, Quebec is fictional. Wow, so maybe we didn't have to do this episode at all, because that's pretty much what I thought it would be. <laughs> and now one time for real. Sure, we'll do the big stuff first. Okay, so Canada is a federation. Federalism has a slightly different meaning here than uh, what it's traditionally meant in the U.S. We have the prime minister's government in Ottawa and then 10 provincial governments. All 11 of those governments derive their powers from Canada's constitution, which we have only had since 1982. Canada is also comprised of three territories in the North. I know that to you, Canada is the North, but to me, here in Toronto, the North is the Yukon, uh, the Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. And to them, I live in the Dirty South. Each province in Canada is run by its premier. Uh, the federal government manages issues like citizenship, national defense, uh, the Department of Justice. Provincial jurisdiction handles matters related to healthcare, education, welfare, and a lot of other things. You guys have two main political parties. We have either three or six, depending on who you ask. Uh, liberals are center-left, conservative center-right. NDP is where Bernie would be, I suppose, if he was uh, a Canadian politician. We also have the Green Party, uh, the Bloc Québécois, dedicated to Quebec sovereignty, but not really. And this asshole, Maxime Bernier, uh, he left the Conservative Party and broke off, tried to do a Trump North thing here by spinning off into his own party, the People's Party of Canada, an anti-immigration party. But that failed spectacularly. Before you get too far into this episode, Max, you need to talk about Indigenous issues. Indigenous people, Inuit, Métis, and First Nations, they are about 5% of the Canadian population, except for the fact that many of them, but not all of them, do not consider themselves Canadian. Uh, we are in the midst of working out uh, a nation-to-nation -nation understanding between First Nations and Canada, all of which is to say that this stuff is very live right now in Canada. 
Thank you, Jesse, for easing us in. And I couldn't agree more that starting with the First Nations is the first point of order for us. U.S. unfuckers will likely recall our culture cancel episode, as we mentioned in the introduction. We covered the systemic issues that plagued the reservation system in the U.S. and Canada and dispelled a number of myths about tribes and tribal culture. And in the episode, we actually made reference to a horrifying legacy system of residential schools that was institutionalized in both of our nations, with the difference being that Canadians were finally beginning to own up to their history as oppressor. Since then, some truly haunting discoveries have been made at former residential schools in Canada that have rocked the nation to its core. In late May of 2021, Canada awoke to the news that the bodies of 215 children from the Kamloops Residential School for Native Children in British Columbia, referred to as Indian Residential Schools, were discovered by in-ground radar as a part of an ongoing project to account for lost Native children. Over the next few weeks, Canada was thrown into a period of national mourning and shame. The discovery merely codified what all Native peoples in Canada had known all along. But for many Canadians, this open secret coming to light was shocking. It's estimated that more than 150,000 Native children were, quote, educated in such residential schools throughout Canada. Historically, most of the children were ripped from their families and forced to move at a very young age. Others were taken by provincial governments as a social services measure of last resort. The roots of the residential school story, however, is far more insidious and terrifying than even that. Canada's Indian Act of 1876, eerily similar to that of the United States, essentially deputized numerous Canadian agencies to forcibly remove Native children from their homes and relocate them to residential schools without parental consent or sometimes even their knowledge. Several amendments to the Act provided greater and broader authority to these agencies and, in 1920, attendance became mandatory for Native children. Another significant development in 1920 was the creation of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP. The Canadian government now had its own domestic army, and over the next decade, residential school attendance would reach a peak under the forceful hand of the RCMP. According to a landmark report in 2011 that provided timelines and information to help coordinate the activities of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we'll get to that in a moment, here are some of the statements of the Native elders. One day the priests came to the village with the policemen. They come to take the kids to the school. Indian agents marched in lockstep with the religious orders, preparing lists of roundups. Strapping young farm boys aided by RCMP officers herded the children onto buckboard trucks or trains like cattle. Children were lured onto boats and planes without parental knowledge, sometimes never to be seen again. Uniformed RCMP pulled children from their mother's arms. Many survivors described the cattle trucks and railroad cars into which they were herded each fall. So those were statements from the Native elders that were taken as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report. 150,000 children were taken from their homes in such a fashion by uniformed officers, agents of the Canadian government, and placed into homes far from their own and against their will. It's estimated that 6,000 of these children perished while in school. Most, quote, graduated with no more than a third grade Canadian education. All had lost their language and tradition. Upon entry, their hair was cut. They were beaten for using their native language, hunted down and punished if they ran away. And countless were sexually abused at the hands of the priests. Yes, the priests who ran the schools. You see, the Catholic Church ran more than 70% of these schools under contracts with the federal government. In 2004, the RCMP Commissioner Giuliano Zaccardelli offered this statement, quote, To those of you who suffered tragedies at residential schools, we are very sorry for your experience. I, as Commissioner of the RCMP, am truly sorry for what role we played in the residential school system and the abuse that took place in that system. In 2014, former RCMP Commissioner Bob Paulson apologized to Indigenous peoples, saying, I am deeply sorry for what has happened to you and the part my organization played in it. And to date, the Catholic Church has yet to acknowledge its participation or an apology, although the bishops at the Vatican released this statement last month. Quote, Pope Francis is deeply committed to hearing directly from Indigenous peoples expressing his heartfelt closeness 
addressing the impact of colonization and the role of the church in the residential school system, end quote. So the RCMP is sorry for, quote, what happened to Native people. Sorry for the, quote, role the organization played in this terrible history. And the Catholic Church, of course, is committed to, quote, hearing from indigenous peoples and expressing heartfelt closeness. These genocidal agents of the government can barely muster even the appropriate contrition and language to acknowledge that they did this. The Canadian government, on the other hand, has at least made some strides. In 2008, the Canadian government, under then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper, finally and formally apologized for our genocidal history and established the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, to undergo a thorough investigation of Canada's crimes against humanity. The TRC was to determine a path forward to aid and assist the Indigenous populations of Canada to create accountability measures that would ensure Canada speaks the truth about what happened and, and try to somehow find a path forward. The result of that were 94 calls to action, most of which were pretty much ignored. For example, one recommendation was that the Canadian government spend a measly $1.5 million to recover the remains of the many Indigenous children who we knew had died while they were forced into these miserable residential schools. It was estimated that there are more than 4,000 of them. And that ask for a million and a half dollars to look into that was rejected. Here we are 13 years later, and with ground-penetrating radar, what Indigenous people have been telling us for a long time has been confirmed, school after school. And over a thousand kids so far who never came home from residential schools, uh, in many cases, no records were made of their deaths, no markers placed on their graves, uh, parents were notified after their kids were buried, or not at all. So Canada is finally beginning to grapple with this shameful part of our history and the impact that, that history has on the present. So this is an important starting point for us on so many levels on fuckers. First off, for the obvious human reason of acknowledging what happened to the original inhabitants of the nation now known as Canada. But I offer this starting point as well because of how brilliantly and shamefully it highlights the difference between the US and Canada. To begin, there were 130 residential schools of this kind in Canada, and the country is reeling at these discoveries. I know a lot of Canadians, and we're fortunate to have a good chunk of Canadian listeners on this show, and most of them, and I should clarify that the ones I'm talking about are primarily white, English-speaking Canadians, most of them are generally aware of their history, more so after the TRC was established, and yet, believe it or not, most were truly unaware, either deliberately or otherwise, of what went on at the residential schools. It's why this horror is so fresh to them. But as usual, everything in the US is bigger and more complex. There were 130 such schools in Canada, just hold that point. And as Mary Annette Pember, a correspondent for Indian Country Today noted in a recent NPR interview, the concept and framework for these schools was established in the US. So over that same period of history, Remember that they had 130. Over the same period of history, the U.S. operated 350 schools. And it's not like it hasn't been in the news here as well, since Deb Holland is the first native head of the Interior Department in the U.S., right? You can find articles in The Times and The Atlantic and NPR noting that we have yet to launch formal investigations into the U.S. system. But on most media outlets around the American water coolers and dinner tables, the subject simply doesn't come up. So there's another important difference to note. Canada has been so rocked by these revelations that there was a robust national discussion about whether or not Canada Day, the 4th of July equivalent up north, should even be celebrated. Like, this was a real debate. Can you even imagine something like that happening here? We had national demonstrations and outrage in a movement called Black Lives Matter. The very idea literally tore us apart. So the chances that we're going to have a similar moment when we finally uncover, and we will, when we finally uncover bodies of murdered Native children in the United States, it's a fucking fantasy to think that we'll care. And lastly, before we move on, these discoveries, the TRC, the national conversation about First Nations rights highlights an important shift in Canadian culture. See, for decades, Canada was seen as the good guy on the world stage, the nice ones. 
Americans traveling abroad would quickly brush up on Canada to try and pass themselves off as Canadians in foreign countries. How do I know that? Because I did it. China, Cuba, all of Europe and others would look to Canada as the rational sibling in North America. You have to understand that Canadian nationalism takes a vastly different form than it does here in the U.S. This was an inexorable and critical part of the Canadian national identity. So as much as the nation is going through a period of mourning, understand that it's just as much about mourning the loss of human life as it is mourning their identity as the humanitarian nation of the world. And we're going to lighten the load a little bit in a minute on fuckers, but this is a theme that we'll return to later in the show. We have a lot of ground to cover, but first, an homage. Like some fries with gravy, please. Oh, yeah, you mean poutine. What? I'm in a foreign country. What does this person mean? All I want is disco fries and not this strange cuisine. Hey, uh, excuse me, where's the nearest Starbucks? Oh, there's a Tim Hortons on the corner, eh? And one across the street. Another down the road a bit, and one just after that. I've heard of this Tim Horton, but he's not someone I know. Horton has a who, but can he make Frappuccino? Oh, Canada! Are you British? Is it always this cold? Why are you sorry? Who's Tim Horton? Do you love or hate Trudeau? Oh, Canada, so many fucking questions. What's a leader? What's a two for? Is curling a real sport? How does butter make a tart? Do you all love Martin Short? Oh, yeah. Wow. Ouch. Oh, sorry, can I help you? Thank you, my pleasure. Oh, yeah. Do you mean poutine? Everyone is so polite, it's really so obscene. No wonder that the French keep trying to secede. Hi, uh, excuse me, hi, do you have change for $10? Oh, yeah, for sure. I can give you 10 loonies. What? For five toonies. Oh, what the fuck is with this money? How can I take it seriously? A loony and a toonie, what does that even buy me? Can you tell me one more time about Celsius degrees? I don't get it. Oh, Canada, so many fucking questions. Do you really choose to live here? It's so cold, can you not leave? If the metric system works, how do you how do you measure your own feet? Good question. Oh, Did Alanis Morissette really go down on that guy from Full House in the theater? Oh, yeah, for sure. Wow. So we've already established that Canada has a little darker history than we thought in terms of its relationship to the indigenous population. Might there be other skeletons in their closet? And we already acknowledge that it's folly to try and stuff the entire history of a nation into one episode, so let's talk about why and what the fuck we're doing here. Well, similar to how we approached Cuba, there are myths to dispel and intersections to evaluate. This is, after all, a show about American politics, so we'll obviously bring it home with pertinent information about our relationship. As we know, America is the center of the known universe and the birthplace of Jesus Christ, every dinosaur, and all of humankind. Well, on fuckers, let's start with this. Do you know who our largest trading partner in the world is? Oh, China. No. No, silly. Mexico. Uh uh. Wait, I know. Europe. Guys. Russia. Are you fucking... The moon. That's why that Amazon guy's going there. Amazon is our largest trading partner? Stop it, you two. Our largest trading partner, 
The top consumer of our exports, the more important part of trade relationships, is Canada. That's right, they're number one at buying our shit. We spend so much time talking about China. 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 And then, of course, we're building a wall to block Mexicans. We have embargoes, targeted sanctions, or outright prohibitions on trade with Iran, Cuba, North Korea, Venezuela, Congo, China, Somalia, Zimbabwe, Ukraine, Belarus, Haiti, Libya, Burma, and sometimes Russia. But through it all, through our spats and our fits, the one constant in our lives is Canada. And yet Professor Orange Von Fucknugget tried portraying Canada as selfish. You gotta love us, right? And how we treat our best friend and sibling. And that's the thing. Canada is our natural sibling. As much as their system and loyalty is tied to the British federally and France provincially and Quebec, in almost every way they cannot escape the fact that we are their asshole brother. And yet, we really, truly, and be honest here, we don't know jack shit about them. What was your reaction to first hearing that Canada is becoming the 51st state? I was actually shocked. I mean, from all the countries they could choose from, they went with Canada. So that was kind of surprising to me. So we share a border. They buy our shit. They stand behind us almost 100% of the time in foreign disputes. They look like us. Do they do some weird shit? Sure, who doesn't? But on balance, the average Canadian knows more about U.S. history and politics than Americans know about U.S. history and politics. And on balance, we know jack shit about theirs. So in the spirit of family, to honor our sibling, for the love of shit, let's go through some of the basics. Because if nothing else, climate change might someday make Halifax feel like Miami Beach. So you might want to invest early on fuckers. Speed round! Where would entertainment be without Canada? Jim Carrey, Seth Rogen, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, Will Arnett and Harold Ramis, The Ryans, Gosling and Reynolds, Michael J. Fox, how about the entire Matrix franchise, Carrie Ann Moss and Keanu Reeves? Or music, Alanis, Celine, Drake, The Weeknd, Sarah McLaughlin, Neil Peart, Robbie Robertson, Anne Murray, The Beebs, Leonard fucking Cohen. And check this out, Americans probably won't get this, but every Canadian promise is about to well up a little bit. These are the opening chords to the Tragically Hip's biggest hit song. Now, what did this band, simply known as The Hip, mean to Canada? Well, when the band's lead singer, Gord Downey, passed away from cancer in 2017, the entire nation mourned. And we are, we are less as a country without Gord Downey. So lesson number one, do not disrespect the hip. Lesson number two from this will come later. Okay, so back to the basics. As Jesse said before, there are 10 provinces and three territories in Canada. I'll go through them alphabetically and list the capitals quickly. And for Americans at home, to help understand the character and personality of each of these, I'll list the American celebrity they most resemble. Here we go. Alberta, capital Edmonton. Think Daniel Day-Lewis, but from there will be blood. British Columbia, capital Victoria. More like Leo in The Revenant. Manitoba, capital Winnipeg, very Tilda Swinton. New Brunswick, with capital Fredericton, is like William Macy. Newfoundland and Labrador, capital St. John's, would be Randy Quaid, or an actual Labrador retriever. The capital of Nova Scotia is Halifax, and this is more Donald Sutherland. Okay, I cheated, he's actually from there, and it makes sense. Ontario, the most populous province, and its capital Toronto, again, I'm cheating here, because it's just Drake. Prince Edward Island, or PEI, and capital Charlottetown is most certainly Kathy Bates. Quebec and the highly original Quebec City is definitely Marion Cotillard. Saskatchewan and capital Regina, yes, I'm saying that correctly, stop snickering, is like Tommy Lee Jones, very angry. Now to the territories. These are the vast, sparsely populated areas much further north. No real celebrities for you American unfuckers, because these are mostly inhabited by indigenous people, and we spent a century casting white Americans in these roles, so we don't actually have any celebrity frame of reference. Assholes that we are. If, though, the Northwest Territories and the capital of Yellowknife, however, did have a celebrity personality, it would be named Bob. 
because when the Northwest Territories were being formed, there was an attempt to vote for the most popular name, and for a while the Canadians, sick fucks that they are, wanted Bob to be the name of this territory. Almost as good as the UK's Bodie McBoatface proving that Canadian humor has UK in its DNA. Then there's Yukon and Capitol White House. Uh, speaking about assholes that we are, your US-centered ass said White House. It's White Horse. Sorry. There are only 35,000 inhabitants, which, by the way, is larger than it used to be because people are actually fucking moving there. Imagine that. And lastly, none of it. Which is a joke that writes itself, right? I mean, hey, how much of this area have you visited, eh? Oh, none of it. The capital of none of it is Iqaluit, and it's largely the home of the Inuit people. Now, before we get into some economics and politics, who's excited? I left out one super important detail. No matter the province or territory, no matter your political affiliation, the Canadian people take their hockey very seriously. So one should never, ever contact a Canadian friend or relative during hockey night in Canada. What the fuck is wrong with you guys? Both of you, you're fucking from another planet. I can't believe we live in the same country. Oh, the fucking phone's ringing during hockey night in Canada. Who's calling during hockey night in Canada? Who the fuck even has a hard line anymore? Archambault, rip the fucking phone out of the hole! What's next? You're gonna have someone deliver a pizza during the fucking overtime? Ah, Canada, the land of socialism. Everything is owned by the state. They have no freedom of movement. They have to come to the states for surgeries, and no one can get ahead. They're forced to speak French. Our heads are so far up our fucking asses when it comes to Canadian economics because our politicians know that we don't know anything about it. So they just say the stupidest shit. Here's the deal. Canada has a lot of socialized programs, just like the United States, but it has a market economy with private and public sectors relies heavily on trade, issues its own currency as we covered in our MMT episode, and has nearly the same business tax rate as the United States. It's not a socialist country. But the pundits on the right in the U.S. insist on calling it that. Hey, guess what else Canada has? 64 billionaires. What? They're ranked eighth overall in sheer numbers of billionaires and has more of them per capita than the U.K., Sweden, China, Brazil, Japan, South Africa, Russia, and hundreds more. How can that be? Well... Guess what? You can accumulate wealth in Canada, believe it or not. In fact, one of the dust-ups following the pandemic was how much the billionaire class wealth increased during this period. Hopefully that might sound familiar. But it is more expensive to live as a Canadian than as an American. While federal taxes are pretty reasonable, some of the provinces can be tough. Lots of fees, lots of taxes, and lots of places. On its face, the average American household appears to be slightly better off than the average Canadian household until you dig into the numbers and look at income distribution. According to the last comparative government report issued by the Canucks, quote, in the top 1% interval, for example, the average household income in the United States is $288,000 higher than in Canada, end quote. Now, just below this 1%, American households bring in 94,000 more on average, and all the way down to the 90th percentile, so the top 10%, American households bring in 23,000 more on average. Abstracting then from households in this first percentile group, Canadian households with incomes up to the 56th percentile are better off than American households at the same point in income distribution, meaning that a little over half of Canadian households are better off. Okay, then there are the real economic offsets that are difficult to measure in absolute monetary terms, but they certainly matter. For example, Canadians have um, health care and greater access to mm, education. So Americans spend more, a lot more on these things. But on the flip side, as I'm sure every Canadian will tell you, there are a lot of fucking taxes. Not income, which is pretty similar to the U.S. and reasonable for earners, but taxes up and down the chain. Manufacturing, sales, land, provincial nuance taxes, it all adds up. Now, Canada operates under a progressive system, which is why you see the bottom 56% of Canadians are actually better off than American households, no matter how you slice it. Max, if I may offer a quick translation, essentially, because income and wealth disparity in the United States is so extreme, and because you are our neighbors, and like, you know, 95% of the media we consume comes from you, we have a really hard time in Canada dealing with our own pretty serious income and wealth disparity. Ours, too, is a wildly inequitable society with a growing divide between the rich and the poor and a rapidly shrinking middle class, 
housing is a crisis in Canada. It is scarce. Cops were just photographed in my neighborhood, brutally busting up a homeless encampment. Rampant police abuse. They were cracking skulls, totally needless. We have an opioid epidemic raging through this country. The obvious supports and solutions for that are nowhere to be seen. But it's always the same story. Because we're not quite as bad as you with social safety net stuff and with wealth and income disparity, because we're not quite so bad as this outlier, United States, there is rarely any political will to improve things. We are often used as sort of a rhetorical device, a tool for Americans to say, look at how good they are. We could be like that. And that gives us cover. We like feeling like uh, we got it right. And that often serves to kind of let our leadership off the hook when it comes to improving things here, even as they get worse. Now for a minute, let's revisit our discussion about taxes from prior episodes and MMT specifically. Because we have to disabuse Americans of the idea that you can't do business in Canada or get ahead. Unfuckers know that I'm a fan of keeping individual tax rates reasonable to allow for wealth appreciation and consumer discretionary spending across the board. Of course, this works even better if, like Canada and every other fucking industrialized country on the planet, essential items like healthcare and education are part of the deal. And that I'm not all that hung up on taxing the rich. My argument has been to tax the thing that creates the uber wealthy and pay for non-inflationary items with no demand ceiling like welfare programs and healthcare. Canadians are just getting hip to the concepts of deficit spending as a result of the pandemic, with current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau horrifying Canadian deficit hawks by suggesting the nation would have to run deficits for a while. In fact, Canada's debt-to-GDP ratio is running about 117%, which is about 10% higher than the U.S., but it's also the first time Canada has ever run this high. Canada has a federal corporate tax rate of 15%. Ours is 21. And like the individual states can do for businesses and individuals, the provinces also have the ability to levy taxes. In fact, each province levies progressive taxes that allow for also a range of deductions, anywhere from 2% to upwards of 15%. So at the highest rate, you're talking about 30% total business tax, which is less than where we were before Trump and close to where we'll be again under Biden on just the federal level in the United States. And these rates will adjust more frequently than in the U.S., depending upon the party in power in the province and if there are open budget gaps. But I digress. One huge difference between us is in the area of tax fraud and avoidance. I'm going to link an article that rages politely, as only Canadians can, at the wealthy Canucks harboring offshore money. <gasps> Canadians for Tax Fairness estimates that there's about $200 billion hidden offshore somewhere from wealthy Canadians. And the U.S. is like, hold my beer and my keys and my purse and my Ferrari. Remember our number on fuckers? The projected amount the U.S. holds offshore? Yeah, it's $10 trillion. So, needless to say, wealthy Canadians are either far more patriotic or, can it be, they have rules and regulations that prevent these wealthy people from hiding their fucking money offshore like fucking criminals. What's the point here? That it can be done. We just don't want to because our politicians are all bought and paid for. And that's what I've been yelling about. I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, a boot. It's about what we're talking about. Okay, fuckers, let's wade into familiar territory and bring our Canuck buddies along in our Buck Milton Friedman journey. To do this, we'll unpack just a little bit about the political winds up north, which, while chilly at times, don't blow as strongly as they do down here. But that's not to say that Canada has been unaffected by neoliberalism and the Chicago School doctrines. In fact, it's very much a part of who they are, or at least who they've become. Now, to do this, we have to dig back into the structure of their political system for a moment to talk about how things get done. It's in the Canadian Criminal Code, eh? Yeah. Like, there's legal precedent setting cases in law. So, like, uh, give us our free beer. No, not the Criminal Code. I'm talking about how the economy is managed and its guiding philosophy. Here, there are a few parallels between our nation's histories. Forever, the dominant political party in Canada has been the Liberal Party. That of Justin Trudeau and his father Pierre and Jean Chrétien. But there were two seismic disruptions that occurred when the Conservatives took over for extended periods, in modern history at least. The first was the election of Brian Mulroney in 1984, and then again when Stephen Harper was elected in 2006. 
Each man ruled for nearly a decade and helped prevent the NDP and Liberal parties from implementing greater social change. Though it's important to note that our idea of liberal and conservative is still a little different than Canada's. In fact, on social policies, even the conservatives in Canada would be considered incredibly leftist by today's bizarre American standards. So what I'm talking about primarily in these two decades is the economic side of neoliberalism in terms of free trade, taxes, and loosening of corporate regulations. And before we get there, let's quickly examine the legacy of the Liberal Party in Canada since it is traditionally dominated. From a 10,000-foot perspective, which is 3,048 meters, Canadian Liberals are far more in favor of centralized economic control than either the NDP or Conservatives. The NDP, by the way, is the spiritual challenger to the Liberal Party from the left on most policies related to workers' rights, climate change, and progressive taxation. The NDP's current leader, Jagmeet Singh, is a fascinating and fashionable candidate, and he's quickly becoming a force that is reigniting interest in the NDP. As for the Liberal Party, here's Chrétien on the definition of economic liberalism in Canada to understand the nuance. Liberalism is founded on freedom of the individual, equality of opportunity, compassion for the underprivileged and protection of the weak, and tolerance of diversity. Liberalism certainly relies on free markets, but it recognized, at the same time, the necessary role of government in facilitating change and in delivering necessary public goods and services. Please stop doing that. Sorry. Liberal policies dating back to post-World War I are iconic, beginning with Prime Minister Mackenzie King, who ushered in fair-wage legislation, the old-age pension, unemployment insurance, and family allowance. Later, Lester Pearson would introduce the Canada Pension Plan, Medicare, and the Canada Assistance Plan that expanded the Canadian welfare system, as well as a non-discriminatory set of immigration regulations. The legacy of this last bit of legislation is that today, Canada's population is still nearly 20% foreign-born, as it's one of the world's most accepting nations and, in fact, relies heavily on attracting talent from all over the world. Take note, U.S. That's where the talent's going. Engineers, doctors, lawyers, great minds from all over the rest of the world. You think they want to come here? They don't. They want to go there. Okay? And when climate change takes over, we're all fucked because it's going to be warm up there. It's going to be really, really blistering hot down here and everything's going to suck. So get your shit together. <clears throat> Sorry. Pierre Trudeau's government further expanded unemployment insurance to include job training, promoted cooperative housing, and introduced the child tax credit while indexing family allowance, old age security, and income tax brackets. Trudeau was actually the first politician in Canada that truly had rock star appeal. Long before his now famous son, who we'll get to, won the hearts of liberals around the world just like Obama did, Pierre Trudeau was the real star. He was incredibly popular. He could also be a flaming fucking asshole. In the kind of society that you yeah, live in. Well, there's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed. But it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to... Uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at any memory. cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. Now, this is a very famous clip in Canada. It shows a different and distinctly tougher side of Trudeau, who also quite notoriously didn't give a rat's ass about the indigenous people of Canada. In fact, part of the burden, and rightfully so, that son Justin carries around is his father's rejection of indigenous sovereignty. Speaking on behalf of the Canadian government, I reject once again the terms assimilation and extinction as applied to the Aboriginal peoples. I reject them as categorically as the idea of complete independence and absolute sovereignty as a basis for relations between the Aboriginal peoples and all governments within our Federation. In hindsight, it's a strange position for a man who fought assiduously for the rights of others, especially Quebec, as he officially indoctrinated multiculturalism and bilingualism into the federal charter. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws, which specifically prescribe that all signs be in both English and French. Which reminds me, how rude of me not to list these policies also in French. I'll make sure to do so going forward. Moving to Chrétien, he would create the National Child Benefit, the Early Learning and Child Care Program, and improve housing and scholarships as well as education. 
And these were done on the heels of a financial crisis because Canadian liberals adhered to Keynesian theories. When times are good, you invest in welfare programs and lifting up your people rather than austerity. Translator? Bon vivant bouillardet, school de sac, laissez faire chicken cordon bleu. Formidable baton rouge, noblesse oblige, au bon pain, chateau maman. Broke monsieur, broke madame. The Liberal governments of Canada were also routinely on the front lines in recognizing Cuba and China as legitimate regimes that would only develop greater human rights internally with the export of Canadian values and economic trade. Translator? Estupide! Frère Jacques, Grey Poupon, Marquis de Sainte-Tourette, Federal Duster, Croissant, Les Miserables, First Catcher, Luke Robert, I D'Artagnan, Payet, Friend Tark, and Don Pinot, Poster, Parfait! Eau de Toilette! Eau de Doudade! So, Back to the two recent periods when conservatives took over. The first conservative victory ushered in the leadership of Brian Mulroney, back when conventions in Canada were fun and you never knew who was going to be chosen. Mulroney was cut from the same cloth as Reagan and Thatcher as Canada too got a little caught up in the go-go 80s. Mulroney was stylish and slick, charismatic and conservative, but in a Canadian way. He negotiated NAFTA, but he also introduced the dreaded GST tax, a tax on manufactured goods that drove up prices. He pushed to shrink the size of government and was one of the earliest politicians to publicly pressure South Africa to free Nelson Mandela. Internally, he steadily lost ground throughout his tenure for failing to bring Quebec fully into the fold during the historic failure of the Meech Lake Accord. But the French Canadians, being so very French, were having none of it. In fact, they disliked him and his tactics so much that the Bloc Québécois was codified as a party under his tenure. So overall, he's considered kind of a bad guy to liberals in Canada, which shows you how fucking far apart we are in terms of what makes a bad guy. The next big interruption to the liberal dominance came under Stephen Harper, who ruled as prime minister pretty much during the Bush and Obama years. Harper would manage Canada through the financial crisis, which was far less severe in Canada because they didn't have the same corrupt banking underpinnings as the U.S. But, as the saying goes, when the U.S. catches a cold, the rest of the world gets coronavirus. That is not, the, not how it goes. Harper was a classic neoliberal dickhead. Cut taxes, shrink government, roll back welfare reform, yada yada. He was also surprisingly terrible on the environment, kind of the first of the Canadian leaders to go backwards on environmental policy. In large part, this is due to the neoliberal obsession with fossil fuel and Harper's deep connections to the oil and gas industry and the province of Alberta. On the flip side, it was Harper who finally and formally apologized to the First Nations of Canada and created the TRC. Like I said, even their bad guys are nice compared to our monsters. Listen closely, though, to the language that Harper uses at Davos in 2011, talking about how Canada was able to recover faster than other countries after the financial crisis, and pay close attention to the end of the clip. We encourage businesses to invest and help them avoid layoffs. We put substantial funding into skills training, and we extended support for workers who lost their jobs. These things we did on a timely, targeted, and temporary basis. We did not create permanent new programs or government bureaucracy. Timely, targeted, and temporary. These are the exact words uttered by that fucker Larry Summers, the Friedman acolyte that reigned in the Keynesian wing under Obama during the financial crisis in America. In her essay, Canadian Liberalism as a Distinctive Tradition, Brooke Jeffrey writes that, quote, virtually all of the long-standing values of reformed liberalism were categorically rejected by the new conservatism of Thatcher, Reagan, and in Canada, Stephen Harper, and his new conservative party. They drew their inspiration not from Locke, Rawls, or Keynes, but from Hobbes, Hayek, and Friedman. Now, before we bring this home, let's speak briefly about the current administration so we can intelligently reference it moving forward in the show. Justin Trudeau, son of Pierre and first wife Margaret Sinclair, lover of the outdoors, the tragically hip, and weed. JFK and Obama smashed together in one cool and good-looking package. I bet he's the darling of leftists, socialists, communists, and liberals the world over. Let's see what the Jacobins said about him. He is the embodiment of the edgy white liberal, a living TED Talk, a cosmopolitan George W. Bush with Jeb Bartlett's politics, but his image has been carefully stage-managed, obscuring policies that track much further right than his shirtless photobombs and parade appearances are designed to suggest. Like most well-bred Canadians, Trudeau thought he was on Earth to save it. 
Canada's bourgeoisie sees no problem in their society's structure. It just needs some tinkering, a little bit of compassion. He thinks like Ezra Klein, but talks like a weird fusion of Malcolm Gladwell, Bono, and Richard Branson. God, I love that. It would be even funnier if it wasn't so fucking true. There are still a few unfuckers who are angry that I called Obama the greatest modern Republican president, so I'm confident that a few new unkanuckers will have the same reaction. But the bottom line is that Justin has some of the same issues. And before we get there, I need to talk directly to unkanuckers about scandals for a second. You see, Canadian media, including my new friends at Canada Land, often refer to the scandal-ridden administration of Justin Trudeau. I got 99 problems with Justin, but my God, scandals ain't one of them. You know what they are? Once on a trip to India, he wore a traditional Indian garb that looked really stupid when he met with Indian leadership who were all dressed in Western suits. Now that's some funny shit, but that ain't no scandal. Another is he accidentally elbowed an MP in the breast when he was angry during a parliamentary session, then he proceeded to apologize like a thousand fucking times afterwards. Again, impetuous, but it was an accident, not a scandal. Down here, we elect you president if you grab women by the- No, no, you're not using that word again. Shut it down. But the biggest scandal of all? During the pandemic, Trudeau's government awarded a Canadian nonprofit called We a huge sum of money to help students out of work get on their feet. Well, it turns out that this enormous charity had once paid members of Trudeau's family to speak at public events in the past. <laughs> that's, that's it. He was cleared, but admonished, and of course, he apologized like a thousand times. And for these infractions, they consider Trudeau compromised and scandal-laden. So one big takeaway for Americans is that Canadians don't know the first fucking thing about a good political scandal. In fairness, if you see the pictures of Trudeau wearing traditional Indian garb, you would probably feel the same way. It's worth Googling. Fair enough. In practical terms, there are larger issues with Trudeau that reflect the subtle shift to the right that we're both experiencing right now. He came into office with great liberal hopes, and he did a few really popular things like legalizing weed, tearfully taking responsibility for inaction on behalf of First Nations peoples, opened up deficit spending to fund programs, and instituted gender parity on his cabinet. So I don't want to call these performative. That's too reductive because these really are important political maneuvers that also have meaning. But there's a neoliberal side to Trudeau, as there was in Obama, that boosts arms sales to countries like Saudi Arabia, coddles corporate Canada and Bay Street, which is Canada's Wall Street. And then there's the environment. Under Trudeau, Canada is the only nation in the G7 whose emissions have increased since the Paris Agreement. Think about that. Much of the reason for this is that Trudeau is catering to the right wing, particularly in places like Alberta, where fossil energy is still the economic lifeblood of the province. As an article in Foreign Policy states, quote, Since 2015, Trudeau's position has been to try meeting Paris Agreement goals while also pumping billions of dollars in corporate welfare to the oil and gas industry. But as the world continues to move away from fossil fuels and the Canadian right becomes even more implacable, it's clear Trudeau must stop trying to chart a middle path and instead finally let a moribund industry go. Justin might be able to cry on command like Clinton, double talk like Obama, and make hearts flutter like JFK, but his inner neoliberal keeps peeking out from behind the facade. So, some final thoughts. Bringing it back to Gord Downey for a moment. I promised the second lesson related to Gord from the hip, and here it is. For most Canadians, Gord Downey was the image they desired most to portray in the world. He was their poet, their spirit, their best self. He made music that was fiercely prideful of Canada and fought tirelessly himself for the rights of the indigenous. He used his fame and his platform for good, and he wrote lyrics that spoke to all Canadians. And yet the discovery of unmarked and mass graves of indigenous children has rocked Canadians to the core. It has already impacted Canada's standing on the world stage as a promoter of human rights, and they know it. It's also revealing another darker side of Canadian politics, the side where Canada is now the second largest arms dealer in the Middle East, the side where they quietly exploit labor in other countries, the side that still promotes and subsidizes oil and gas and loses the moral high ground of environmentalism, the side that allowed billionaires to acquire even more wealth during the pandemic, and the side that remains silent, at times complicit, 
or even directly at the side of the U.S. when we pillage, destroy, and plunder nations abroad. Shit, we haven't even talked about the Ford family up there. The Ford political dynasty is like a mashup of the Bush and Trump families with Hunter Biden at the head of the table. Uncanuckers know what I'm talking about. We just don't have time to get there. And yet even revealing some of the flaws and the fuckery up there, Canada's politics are still superior to the United States in so many ways. There are countless points that I didn't get to, and perhaps we'll work them into future episodes now that we've sort of set the table a bit. But the one thing that sticks out for me is that Canada has a vastly different ethos. Like I said, even their shittiest prime ministers are like Mickey Mouse on the best day of our worst leaders in the U.S. Mulroney and Harper may have been taken in by the likes of Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek, but only as it related to free trade. They still sought to undergird the Canadian system of welfare, to right the wrongs of the past, and maintain Canada's moral standing on the world stage. They didn't try to tear the whole fucking apparatus down like Reagan did. The fact that the country is shocked and humiliated by the discoveries of the native children in mass graves actually says something positive to me. We won't even fucking acknowledge it in the United States, and we created the model for it. We were operating actual concentration camps in the U.S., and no one cares. Their leaders at least have the courage to actually apologize when they get something wrong. And we joke about the abundance of sorries in Canada, but there's something really beautiful and tough about having the courage to say, I'm sorry. Perhaps the most dangerous trend, and one that I hope is reversing now that Trump is gone, was the increase in American news viewership among Canadians we spoke about in the introduction. If I could ask anything of my new Uncanucker friends, it would be to plead with you to look away while we work through our shit down here. I know you're discerning, but you know what? Some pretty smart and discerning motherfuckers down here are now incredibly dangerous because they've been consuming a steady diet of American media bullshit for years and now no longer possess the ability to parse the truth from fiction. We're very, very sick down here, so please do look away. Keep working on yourself, but also do me a favor and stop calling your scandals scandals. They're more like bloopers. Now, the next election in Canada is going to be pivotal. The NDP has a lot of mojo under Singh, who's putting labor, First Nations rights, and poverty at the center of their platform. If they gain seats and traction, it might be one hell of a playbook for us to follow down here. Now, Trudeau, he has a lot of ground to make up on the left, and the Conservatives are, as always, ready to pounce and turn back the clock under the cloak of free market neoliberalism. And for my American unfuckers, let's do the opposite. Let's not look away. There's no specific Tyson principle today except to say that it's time to look past ourselves and listen to what's happening around us. We have a tendency to ignore pretty much everything and view the world through an America first lens, whether we want to admit it or not. Well, just north of us, our largest trading partner and best friend in the world has a lot going for it, and it's time we pay attention. Fuck Milton Friedman. R.I.P. Gord Downey. And what the hell? Fuck Stephen Harper, too. Here endeth the lesson, eh? What up, unfuckers? It's your girl, 99, here filling in for Max while he lazily takes a vacation while the rest of us toil away. We're back with some book love. We have Unknown and Unforgettable, a guide to Canada's Prime Ministers by Gary Schley, and also Applied Political Theory and Canadian Politics by David McGrain. And both are, of course, available in our bookshop, which you can find at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRpod, as well as linked in the show notes. For Podlove, we'd like to highlight our friends over at Canada Land who do amazing work. So check out the Canada Land podcast, which they describe as the best newspaper in Canada is a podcast. And that's hosted by Jesse Brown. And then also check out The Backbench, which is another pod in the Canada Land family, which they describe as dig into Canadian politics from the best seats in the house, which is hosted by Fatima Syed. And again, you can find those podcasts linked in the show notes. All right, on to coffee donations. So we had a lot of coffee coming this week. Simon from Wales bought us three coffees and said, Hey folks, coffees as promised in my recent email. Hope you all had a good break and stay safe. Well, you know, I'm not on break, but someone else is. 
Um, Tyler M. bought us five coffees and said, Max, still loving the show. My absolute favorite podcast. It has ruined other pods for me. He appreciates all the hard work Manny and me do so much. The show that you three have produced makes me a more intelligent individual and it truly means the world to me. Thanks again. Hashtag FMF, hashtag FRM, hashtag FRR. Someone bought us 10 coffees. Thank you, someone. Jim H. bought us three coffees. I just discovered your podcast from the David Pakman show and I'm loving it. I'm working my way through your archive and I just want to say truly from the bottom of my heart, fuck Milton Friedman. We agree with you. Thank you, Jim. Bookstore Kim, love that name. She said, really appreciated the Occupy tribute. Since Bernie was sidelined, I haven't had any hope. Your show makes me hope again. Love the coffee. Love the connections to other unfuckers. Hashtag FMF. Thank you, Bookstore Kim. Someone, another someone bought us 10 coffees. Who are you people? Please come forward. We want to meet you. Jeremy bought us five coffees and they said, an Aussie exile, an avid fan in rural New Zealand, a.k.a. Kiwi Stan. Fuck Rupert Murdoch and Milton's oh-so-fuckworthy wraiths. Plus, he sent us a video from Sammy J called Left Wing Yoga, which was super funny. You can check that out on YouTube by visiting https colon backslash... I'm just kidding. I don't want y'all to think I'm old like Max and Mandy. I'm like young and I'm cool. Don't worry. What the fuck? I'm, I'm not that old. And to cap it off, Angela E. bought us 10 coffees and said, As a young college student, one of my first courses was an intro to various Western philosophers. That is where I first learned of old Milton, and it was a very surface introduction, but even my lasting impression of his economic philosophy was, quote, Well, that's fucked up. End quote. So thank you for teaching me why my instincts were right. I've learned so much from reading books you've recommended and Obvi, the podcast. Thank you to Max, Mandy, Mandy, that's my dog's name. (laughs) Thank you to Max, Manny, and 99, that's me. I love the coffee. Trying to get y'all more Utah unfuckers. Well, thank you, Angela. Please do. All right, on to Twitter. At Rumble It Up said, I've never tried the UNFTR coffee, but I'd very much like to. I have tried this podcast, and it's fucking brilliant. Well, get on that. Get some coffee. Go to unftr.com slash shop, Okay. At Midwest Monsters suggested buying the Montana man who confronted Tucker Carlson and called him, quote, the worst human being known to mankind, end quote, some unfucking coffee. You know, that sounds like a great idea. What do you think, Manny? Huh? I, I can't hear you. My hearing aid is on the fritz. Huh? Who is this? Ninety-nine? And Midwest Monster again, as well as at Mbustama, have been spreading the UNFTR gospel by recommending the show to others, and we really appreciate that. And we got some feedback on the the, uh, the sketches we do after last week's Best Of. So A. Fandre said, These sketches are so funny and on point. Top-notch production and voice talent makes the comedy pop. Thank you. And Bustama said, My favorite character is hashtag Bobert with the gun sounds. Perfection. And at Joe Lang 8 said, Sketches are my least favorite segment. The show is extremely entertaining and informative, and the sketches always feel like a disruption. Reading other comments, I see I'm in the minority. Well, be that as it may, Joe, thank you for your honest feedback. Why don't you send us an email at unftrpod at gmail.com with some more info, and maybe we can craft one up that finally tickles your fancy. I feel like tickles your fancy is something Max would say, you know, like a cute, quippy one-liner, so I'm trying to get his energy here. All right, on Facebook, we have a little more constructive criticism from Barry W., who does not agree with our take on Milton Friedman. He's also going to send some more thoughts via email, but thank you to him as well. We love positive feedback, naturally, but constructive is just as important to make the show great. Just try not to hurt Max's feelings. He's very sensitive. Our girl, Nettie M., she sent us an amazing photo of her rocking her UNFTRT at a protest in downtown Oshkosh. We love to see that. Tees will be back in stock sometime next month. Thank you to all the unfuckers who sent us pictures of their t-shirts and coffee. I haven't had a chance to aggregate them all yet, but I'm going to post a cute little collage or something. Uh, We love seeing it. Thank you so much. And then on Instagram, Christina A. left us a comment on a post from our Cuba episode, and they said it could be great for you to listen to some of the lived experiences of Cubans on the island right now. I'd invite you to check out artists like Tanya Bruguera or Roberto Alvarez. I recently listened to this episode, and an update could be timely given recent events. Thank you, Christina. We will definitely check out those artists and encourage other unfuckers to as well. I know Max loved putting together the Cuba episode, and I'm sure an update is not out of the realm of possibility. So as far as emails, I'm going to hold off on emails this week because we got a lot of really great and thoughtful ones from unfuckers, and I want to make sure they get the responses they deserve when Max is back in action. I I still can't believe he went on vacation. So on the reviews front, 
Uh, J.B. Hall said, highly informative and entertaining. Max and crew give background and analysis of political issues in a way that sticks it to both sides of the political aisle, although one side more deservedly so. Agreed. And then Chop Gal said, I've caught up to all 32 episodes and I'm going back to listen to them again. Thank you to David Pakman for referring me. Of course, thank you, David. Had I had someone teaching me all of this in high school, I would have definitely paid attention and aced the class. I can't say how much I enjoyed listening to this show, and I've made it a point to refer others to it. Thank you, UNFTR. Well, thank you, Chop Gal. And I agree. My U.S. history professor in high school loved Ronald Reagan. So obviously, you know, not necessarily aligned here. Thank you for those reviews. We'd love to see more reviews from Unfuckers. It really helps us on the charts and get found and all that, you know, bullshit that you hear on every podcast. But it's true. I promise. And that's about it. So, as always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. Pepperidge Farm remembers. Uh, It's time for my nap. Our theme music and our parody song and our show notes song and our quickie song is produced by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is written and hosted by Max and distributed by, uh, let's say me, 99. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social everywhere at UNFTRPod. Read our essays on UNFTR.substack.com and visit UNFTR.com to learn more about the show and how to support us. And we're out. Uh, 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 uh. Did I kill it? Okay, I'm tired. I want to go sleep. 288,129 dire- tires. My. For Podlove, we'd like to highlight our friends over at Canada Land. Canada Land. I'm really having trouble saying that. Uh, our friends over at Canada Land, who do amazing work, so check out the Canada... Oh, my God. The capital of none of it is Iqaluit, and it's largely the home of the... Inter- Fuck. The worst human being known to mankind. Mankind. I think I'm, like, illiterate or something. Is that possible? Um, okay. And dispelled a number of myths that tribes... I'm sorry, man. <laughs>